Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. Her name is Danielle DiMartino Booth. And full disclosure, we know each other for way too long. We've spent way too much time fishing, debating economics, markets, the Fed, which Cabernet is better, making fun of some, some mutual acquaintances who shall go nameless. And I brought her on the show this week to talk about her book, Fed Up, as well as to discuss and debate economic policy, the Fed, the markets. And honestly, I had way too much fun. If it sounds like we're arguing, it's because we just know each other too well, and it's practically shorthand. So if you're at all interested in everything from the Federal Reserve to repo markets to Alan Greenspan, you're going to find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado my discussion with Danielle DiMartino Booth. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is the CEO and Chief Strategist of Quill Intelligence, a research and analytics firm where she authors commentary with an actually fairly rabid following Previously, she served nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, where she was uh, chief advisor and Wall Street liaison to President Richard Fisher. She is the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America, as well as somebody I've known for, I About don't know, 10 years now. A decade? Mm-hmm. Danielle DiMartino, welcome to Bloomberg. It's awesome to be here. So you and I have known each other for a long time, and I, it's weird asking you questions that I asked you a decade ago, but <laughs> for the sake of the audience, I'm going to pretend we hardly know each other and start with, so Danielle, how did you begin your career on Wall Street? Well, it was something of a circuitous route. I was born to be a writer. I was accepted at the NYU Scholars Program. I was going to travel. I was going to be an esteemed, very poor journalist. And my Covering what? What sort of things interested you in your... Uh, my forte when I was younger was sports writing. Really? Yeah, things people would never guess about me. Put that right up there at the top. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Big, huge fan of sports and cars. But anyways, my parents ended up uh, splitting up around then. My father told me that he hadn't paid his taxes for the better part of the last decade, and good luck with the financial scholarship, financial aid that I needed for the other half that wasn't covered by this great big scholarship to go to NYU. 
So I found myself at San Antonio College. Mm-hmm. So I, I am the product of a community college where I started. I went off to the local University of Texas, moved my way up after a few years, became the collar business scholar, just study, study, studied. That was all that I could do to, to figure out how to get back to where I thought I was starting when I was getting out of high school. Am I misremembering? Didn't you get an MBA from the University of so Austin? I got a very, very respected yep, school? Yeah, I've got in- my MBA in finance there. The year that EDS uh, actually opened up a trading floor, one of my great mentors, Dr. Keith, He's the person I, I literally earmark money to the finance department, even though he made me he made me pull apart the black shoals and then showed me how to put it on my calculator. It took me a few years really to forgive him for that. But in any event, so I So wait, when you say EDS, you're talking Ross Perot's electronic data system that there was located way back in when. Texas. The, yeah. Inside the business school we had our own trading floor and That's... we had our own <laughs> fund and it was fun. Right. And I mean it was actual money. Oh God. What's was... more fun than being a trader in the eighties? Come on. Well was... when you're in your early twenties, I yeah, mean come for on. Sure. So how do you end up going from there to Credit Suisse and DLJ? Some guy at Solomon Brothers came to one of these informational interview type things on campus and what he had to say was stand up pretty interesting to me. He said, come on up anytime you like. I said, how's next week work for you? So I, that's, I looked out on the Solomon Brothers trading floor, which was two stories tall. You started at Solly. No, no. That was the first time I'd ever seen anything on Wall oh, Street. Okay. Anything. And I looked out and there were probably like 400 guys and like three girls. Right. And that was it. And I went, look at the ratio. That's really interesting for two reasons. The One is I had a similar experience very, very early in my career. You wanted to become a waitress? Interviewing at the Merrill Lynch trading floor, which was a football field, but it was the same ratio. Oh, yeah. All white dudes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know what? It's the first and last time in my entire life I've had credit card debt. First and last time. When you moved to the city. Banging on doors on Wall Street. So how did you Lehman up- Brothers, yeah. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Bear Stearns, you name it. You dodged a few bullets in that list. So. I dodged a few. Hey, look, Arthur Anderson wanted to keep me after business school and fast-track me to becoming a, you know, an, an auditor and, and then become a strategist of some kind. And they were working with this big company in Houston called Enron. Enron. <laughs> so I'm like, and my mom's like, you'd be staying in Texas, honey. And I'm like, I am so out of here. She's like, DLJ, DLJ. Is, is, what is that, like a transportation company? I'm like, no, mother, it's not DHL. It's DLJ. And, when and that was your first gig out of business school. That was my first gig out of, out of business school. It was the best place to work. I mean, the entire firm, that first Christmas year in 1996, fit in the Rainbow Room. Crazy stuff went on back so then. So that was before But it wasn't pr- all divisions. That was pre-purchase, right? Oh, way pre-purchase. Way, way, way. And when did they get bought? Tony James, in his infinite wisdom, saw the peak and sold the firm at the very top of the bubble. This was like, oh, oh. I think Credit Suisse Good timing. just finished writing off a few billion extra dollars from the DLJ purchase. Recently. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, oh, no. no. I mean, ju- I mean it, they, they wrote off billions of dollars for years. So what did you do at DLJ? I sold all kinds of things to all kinds of people. Bonds, so, equities, derivatives. Bonds, equity. I did, I did share buybacks. I did... A lot of debt retirement working with the former Drexel boys mm-hmm. who DLJ's junk bond desk had absorbed. Right. They were so mischievous. That's the nicest word I can come right. up with. But I had mutual fund companies. I had some high net worth investors, but it was really the debt retirement, the junk bond, the private equity. I mean, uh, like I said, Tony James sold the firm, and then obviously he went on to Blackstone in a great career, but Leon Black walked the halls. I mean, DLJ had a beautiful merchant bank sure. before private equity was a thing. Right. So how do you do the transition from the bleeding edge of capitalism to 
I know. I'll go in-house at the government and work for the Fed. How well, did that come Okay, about? so the Swiss were not near as much fun as DLJ. By the way, overseas investors always tend to top-tick the market or bottom-tick it if they're sellers. So Bless not them. a surprise. No. How long did you stay with Credit Suisse for? 18 whole long months. And so that gets us to around. And by 02? the way, I, I was getting my second master's at the time because I, you know, I'm, I'm Italian. I hold a grudge. So I, but instead <laughs> of NYU, I went to Columbia, the best journalism school, at night, and got my second degree in journalism. Finally, oh really? Finally, got my lifetime dream. I never knew that about you. I, I did. Who was the uh, dean while you were there? Gosh, now you got me because he was Bruskin? only there. No, was he no, there he was only there? there for one year, okay. and then he left. But it was. And now he's back there, I One think. of the most transformative moments of my life was, I graduated in, in December of 01, was not being able to co go to work on Wall Street after 9-11, uh -huh. but having to report to campus the next day, Wednesday. Well, it's the other direction, so the sure. The 12th. Yeah. But being in journalism school on 9-11. Insane. I mean, I mean, I was the oldest, you know, part-time student they'd ever seen. You were also on an institutional trading desk when the dot-coms were imploding. What was that experience like? Well... So, you know, it was really, it was the Enron experience and the Dynegy and all of the, you, you could tell that these were shady deals. It's right. like, why do you keep your Enron price target at 40? Stock hadn't done anything in forever. I mean, you know, one analyst is raking away, you know, a couple million dollars per debt deal. Right. Well, this syndicate business to be done, so we're going to keep our price target high. Look, that's where we are. Oh, wait, today. So, but, but. The, the Enron and the Dynegies of the world kind of set us up for recognizing the internet bubble when it was staring you in the face. So what led you to the move from the bleeding edge of capitalism to going in-house at the F Dallas Federal Reserve? So that was 9-11. 9-11 was a big turning point for me personally. Uh, shortly thereafter, a few weeks after 9-11, I met my current husband, mm -hmm. and we started long-distance dating between Dallas, Texas, and New York. And when the time came, I said, well, just move on up here to Manhattan. And he said, you go out six nights a week and think it's normal. So that was that. I ended up moving to Dallas. I signed a non-compete and agreed to leave the industry. Uh -huh. I called the publisher of the Dallas Morning News, and I said, I'll work for free. I'm retired. They just... Credit Suisse wrote me a big check to leave. And ba basically, the book went to the junk bond desk. Gotcha. Um, so I, you know, I, I tootled away with a, you know. That's right. A, you were as, publishing at the Dallas Morning News. As a reporter. For a while. You know, did you ever and, meet Bill Diener over there? I, I did. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I remember his yes. bio. I mean, I He's was a really good writer. I was rarely in the newsroom per se because uh -huh. I kind of walked in and wrote my own rules because I could. <laughs> you don't need a salary. You don't want to. I'm like, I'm working them. for free here. Here's what I'm doing. But within within a few months, I actually was the first uh, daily columnist that they'd ever had in the history of the paper. So I was writing a, a, a daily about the markets, and I was just as happy as happy I could, could possibly be. Quite fascinating. So you finally have your dream job in journalism working at, what's the paper in Dallas? The Dallas Morning News. Dallas Morning News. And what has you leave a job you had always wanted to go into this crazy semi-government well, thing called know, the Fed. So I start writing about things that had bothered me on Wall Street, like the first CDO, for example, that mm -hmm. was sold at, at Credit Suisse. I'm like, who would buy that equity tranche? But this is 01, 02. Oh, that's a good equity tranche. Did you see the yeah. VIG attached to that? Yeah. That's some fat commissions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I started wondering about these things. I started writing about the national debt. 
got the attention of Warren Buffett, so he invited me out to Omaha. I actually spent a lot more time with Charlie Munger at the time. Who I just find so amazing. Uh, he basically said that the efficient frontier is going to go the way of the dodo bird if the pension advisory industry doesn't change its ways and the Federal Reserve continues to be overly intrusive. I just condensed the 30-minute conversation that I had with him. But he's right, and he's getting righter every day. He might not live to see the change, but he is, is right. So- I would push back and say, so far he's been completely wrong because all the bad things that people have predicted about that have yet to come true. Well, they've definitely yet to come true. But what he said was, it might not happen in my lifetime. I well, he's 96, so that's not saying exactly. a lot. Exactly. He is so, 96. But but I don't think that he saw passive coming in the way that it's come. When passive investing and Jay Powell walk into a bar, it's a beautiful thing. You don't fight him. You, you let them run hand in hand. I don't want to get off on some We'll talk about, about that more because it's a fascinating topic. It is. How did you end up at the Dallas Fed? So I started uh, working some with Jan Hatzius, and he was working Goldman's on- Goldman's Economist. Goldman's Economist, but he was just a rookie back then. Mm-hmm. And he was doing a lot of great work on what Alan Greenspan had been working on, mortgage equity withdrawal. So I started writing intensely about the housing crisis. And at one point, the publisher was like- you, do you know what systemic risk is? And I'm like, actually, I do. He's like, you're saying that this is going to be global and systemic in nature. This is 05. Right. And he's like, you're nuts. And, and if you looked in the right place, there was an overwhelming amount of data. But if you looked in the usual place, everything was, was absent. Fine. Right. Yeah. Who knew what a German Landis Bank was? <laughs> I didn't know until Lehman blew up. In any event... I did get a call one day from Richard Fisher, and he took me to lunch and said, look, you're you're wasting your talents. You should be at the Wall Street Journal, The Economist. What are you doing here in Dallas, Texas? And I'm like, if you couldn't tell, I do have my shoes on, but I'm very pregnant. In any event, within a few months, he asked me to come join the, the Fed. And what was your title? Oh, gosh, I started off as like, you know, a dishwasher right. as, as a writer in the research, research department. Research assistant, yeah. No, not a research assistant. I came in as somebody to help with his speech writing. Okay. And so you were an aide to the president of the Dallas Fed. And it evolved into the more you know, he got his sea legs and realized that the New York Fed markets intelligence, which you're kind of obligated to take if you're running a, a district the New York Fed Markets Desk conducts intelligence with the broker-dealer community. It's actually in ink on their website. Right. So as Joe Q president, whether it be Minneapolis or Cleveland or Dallas, Texas, you're supposed to take all of your market intelligence from the New York Markets Desk, which kind of reads like sell-side research, which Richard figured out really quickly. Because so, he's not so a PhD let's, in economics, neither am I. We're both MBAs in finance. So let's talk about something you sort of snuck in there, which is until he got his sea legs because I was one of several people pretty critical of him in the early days, and I want to throw some stuff at you and have you either defend him or or not. June 2005, Richard Fisher told CNBC, we are clearly in the eighth inning, inning of the tightening cycle, and we have the ninth inning coming up at the end of June. Lots of people began calling him eighth inning Fisher. I'll take a little uh, a blame for that as, as well. Why did he think that we were so far along in the tightening cycle when it was clear Greenspan had a different agenda. 
Greenspan did have a different agenda. There was nothing macroprudential going on. Greenspan at the time said that because the Fed only technically regulated 25% of mortgage lending in America, that's the only thing that the Fed was responsible for policing. There were a few other people inside the institution who were of a different opinion because in the event that there was a falling knife and something went wrong with this subprime explosion, the Fed might be catching the entire falling knife. Before we even get to the subprime issue, which I think you Mm. and I are very much in agreement of, 05, we had already seen gold take off. We had seen inflation take off. Oil was probably halfway on its way to 150. Milk, beef, foodstuffs, everything was moving up. It was pretty clear that there was a lot of inflation in the system, even as the dollar got weaker and weaker and weaker. Mm -hmm. So that's the question is, was he just a little green and, and naive, or did he simply not see what I described as rampant inflation everywhere except the statistics. I think he saw the inflation, but I think more importantly, what he saw too early on. And this is a lesson I think a lot of people who've been inside the Fed and live to tell, learn. It's that easy monetary policy can elongate any cycle. For sure. Any cycle. And right now we're in the longest elongation. So even when Logic. The longest elongation. We're in the longest elongation. It's been lower for longer than it ever has. Uh, that's going to be my first tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty That's pretty interesting. So was he just unaware of how that played out? I think he out? thought that, that because he had Wall Street contacts and because he was speaking to hedge funds and because he knew that there was 125% LTV toxic garbage that was trading hands, that surely this had to give. Well, it had some more gas in the tank before it oh, did get a whole lot more. So let me give you another question, another quote. We're going to fast forward to 2008. And bear in mind, we didn't always agree with each other. I know that about you generally, but knowing your economic worldview and your politics, I could see you respectfully disagreeing with him and then getting to say, I told you so afterwards in a very polite Different verbiage. Richard, if you're listening, I'm still waiting for the opportunity. (laughs) So 2008, the crisis is expanding. There's an FOMC meeting in June and then another one in August. The Fed had left rates at 2% at both meetings. There was one dissenter, one Richard Fisher, president of the Dallas Fed. The sole dissenter was Richard Fisher, who at both meetings, quote, preferred an increase in the target for the federal funds rate unquote. This is in the middle of 2008. What was he smoking? Again, he is much more of an inflation boogeyman. Weimar Republic speaks fluent German, gives speeches in Germany in German. Right. He's much more of that generation than I am. I've learned from Lacey Hunt. Right. That the more debt you create, as long as that debt's going to be absorbed by whatever the system is, because you've got reserve currency status, the only thing that that incremental dollar of debt's going to potentially create a deflation because you're taking away money that you would otherwise spend on something else in order to service the debt. Okay. So there's always going to be a deflationary impetus if you're allowed to grow your debt to levels that Richard would have thought would have created hyperinflation. That makes sense. You have a giant monetary activity should be somewhat deflationary versus a giant fiscal activity, which should be more inflationary. And I was also of the opinion at the time, again, he and I were not in, he and I were in, in agreement on a 2% floor. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say that outright. In 08. Yes. Period. Right. Forever and ever. 
I think that had we stopped at 2%, we would have a much different world today than we do. I wouldn't disagree with you at all on that. It was, it was liquidity. It was the alphabet soup of God knows what acronyms that I was involved in helped the New York Markets Desk set up for the asset-backed securities market. And you, you name the market. It was liquidity that was frozen. The price of credit was meaningless at the time to any investor. Nobody was extending credit at any price. Right. It was it was a function of everything being frozen and unavailable, not expensive. Right. right. We did right. not have to go to the zero bound. So so here's the here's the big question, right? You've been a pretty big Fed critic for a long time. I think you and I both agree. The uh, uh, there's some overlap. I think the Fed's ultra low rates, and I wrote this in Bailout Nation, is one of many causes of the financial crisis. I think you put more weight on that. Uh, in Fed Up, you really say that is where it all begins and ends. Here's where we disagree, and this is what I'm fascinated about. As much as I give them an F for all their actions leading up to the crisis, I give them a B plus following the crisis. What sort of ranking would you give them? By the way, that's just during and immediately after. Normalizing rates over the past decade, I think they're way behind the curve, but we'll come back to that. How would you grade the Fed for their response immediately to the crisis in, let's call it, 08, 09, and even 2010? I would probably give them, not an F, but I would probably give them a C- minus for adhering to the Bernanke Doctrine, which was in- agreed upon at Jackson Hole in 2007 with a very small group of FOMC members, by the way, which mm-hmm. was is kind of against the rules. Um, but in that meeting... It was decided that a precondition to growing the balance sheet, if the time came, right? This is August of 07. If right. the time the came. The market still haven't even made their high, right. which doesn't show up till October 07. Exactly. So if it came to pass that they needed to start growing the balance sheet, quantitative easing, heading to Japan, whatever you want to call it, the Bernanke Doctrine dictated that interest rates must go to the zero bound first. Mm-hmm. That is, that's why I give them the, the C minus. As opposed to a B plus? As opposed to stopping at, had they stopped at two, right. I would have given them a, a B plus because of all, of, because the, of the Pandora's box that was opened by going to the zero bound in so, later years. So here's where I think you and I will find more common ground. Post, let's just call it 2010, 11 through Ugh. 2020, I've been waiting for them to normalize rates and I know some people think this is the, quote, greatest economy ever, but why, if this is such a good economy, haven't rates returned to a more normal level instead of what's still incredibly accommodative? And I know we could blame, where's the 30-year? The 10-year is like 155 the day before we recorded this. Uh, so you could blame the bond market, but really, shouldn't the Fed have been further along the normalization process and off emergency footing, or am I just crazy? Look, QE2 and QE3 were outright mistakes, in my opinion. Would we have suffered a mild and shallow recession? It's impossible to look in any rearview mirror. But we knew at the time that we were creating zombies. I wrote Zombie banks or zombie people? No, no. Well, we... 
We, and I mean, I mean, like politicians and others. We facilitated the saving of zombie banks. Right. That's different. I'm talking about giving birth to zombie corporations. I did an entire briefing on what the potential ramifications would be in the future of cutting a default rate cycle in the high yield market in half. So I have to stop you here and go over each of those zombie banks and zombie corporations. Zombie banks, let's do first, because I think that's the easy one. Zombie banks are banks that, and again, tell me where we disagree. I don't think there's a lot of daylight between us. Hey, if you're a Citibank or a Bank of America or whoever, and you have all these really good assets and you have all these really bad debts, well, there's this lovely building downtown in Manhattan. It's got these beautiful columns, and it's called the Federal Bankruptcy Court. And if you are bankrupt, for lack of a better term, you go down there and you do a Chapter 11 reorg and you take the good parts of the bank and you spin it out and you take the debt. There's no such thing as toxic debt. There's just toxic prices. This junk at, at a dollar or 90 or 80 is fabulous at 15 or 20 or 25. 22 cents on the dollar, John Thane. There you go. So you turn around and now you're ripping the Band-Aid off and maybe we end up at Dow 5000. But now you have a clean, healthy bank. Bank of America is my favorite example. Here's Bank of here's Merrill Lynch. Spin it out. Here's Bank of America. Spin it out. Here's who else did they acquire in the last couple of years before the? Here's Countrywide Mortgage. Spin Countrywide. Yeah, so you end up one. with all these good. So, am I? And I'm talking way too much, but um, I'm literally talking my book. But is that? How you avoid zombie banks? The the that the would pretty have been how downtown. you would have avoided zombie banks, and and you wouldn't have institutionalized too big to be fail with stupid legislation. I was trying to find a polite word, right? And you wouldn't have you let them curse. We'll just leave let it them out. go downtown to the other place downtown, the other Fed on Liberty Street, and instead just go knock knock knock. I need to see somebody. I've got a problem. Right. So. The second question is zombie corporations. What is a zombie corporation? So a zombie corporation is a corporation. Our, our mutual friend, Jim Bianco, who started fishing the same year we did, he's written a lot of great things. I think about 14% of the U.S. stock market is a, are considered to be zombie corporations. They, they couldn't last like one or two. If, if the coronavirus doesn't go away, we're going to have a handful of companies that go poof into the night because they can't handle one or even two quarters of operating themselves because they're so indebted. Meaning so, now what is the normal zombie corporation overly leveraged too much debt ratio typically? If it's 14% now, what was it in the 80s? What was it in the 90s? Or no, is no, that no, no, a- it's, it's 14% of, of, of stocks in America are Zombies. So, for is it when you say fourteen percent stocks? Is it fourteen percent of the companies in America? Fourteen percent of the publicly traded. Okay, so companies in America. So, what has that been historically? Well, if you look at it over time, it's it's been in the single digits. We've always had so walking wounded. So it's double what it usually yes. is. But and the, and ultra low rates goes the argument allows them to refinance cheaply, and so companies that should again other companies that should find that pretty building. With the, uh, the take columns. Take out the dead rot, take out the yucky capacity, make room for new entrants to put in efficient capacity. You get innovation. And uh, so this is about double what it historically has been, if, if, if I'm reading you correctly. If I'm, if I'm quoting Jim correctly, yes. All right. But- Jim, we'll get you on the show to, to follow up and, and do another version and, and continue this conversation. My special guest is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is the author of Fed Up an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. 
So I got to call you out on the title right away. The Federal Reserve is bad for America. I mean, they've made some mistakes. Are they really all that bad for America? Well, when when Jay Powell first gave his first congressional testimony, when he said it's not the Fed's job to backstop the stock market, I went, you know what? We might have to go back and fix that subtitle because it looks like we have an adult in the room. Right. Now, a lot of this could be described as Alan Greenspan, an acolyte of Ayn Rand, who believed in as little government intervention into the economy and the marketplace as possible, was constantly changing rates and doing what Wall Street wanted him to do. Aren't you really complaining that Greenspan was not a great Fed chief? It, For me, at least, and you can talk to people about the era in between Wayne McChesney Martin, my absolute favorite Fed chair of all time, and really? the only other one I liked. Not Paul Volcker? Paul Volcker, my second to favorite one. There you go. No, all right. They're, they're my two favorites because they right. were really the only two who, they had a go to hell button. They just hit it, go to hell, <laughs> go to hell, go to hell. And they did what they needed to do for the country. In his biography, I mean, there was somebody like living with him for two years practically to write this big Alan Greenspan biography. The guy admits that he enjoyed being popular for the first yeah. time. That he was like, wow, I'm like really, really popular with these politicians. They're paying attention to everything I say. All they want is for the stock market to keep going up. Surely I can figure that out. And so right. he had a briefing <laughs> on his desk every single morning. Some schmo had to wake up and write it at 530 in the morning, and he had his stock market briefing every single day. I think he is the first Fed chief with a Bloomberg terminal on his desk, I would not surprise me. It would not surprise me. Look, I always tell people, they're like, when did your anger start? And I'm like, October the 20th, 1987. So go back to that, because that's kind of fascinating. He came in in the summer of 87. August of 87. And following the crash, which was really as much plumbing and other issues, following a huge recovery from 82 to 87... He cuts rates, and basically, my pet theory has been the audience applause just washed over him, and it felt so good, he wanted another hit of that. Absolutely. On October the 20th, instead of presenting in Dallas, Texas, he got on an airplane, flew back to Washington, D.C., released a statement that said the Federal Reserve, in my new popular life, is now going to backstop the banking and financial systems. Okay, the middle part I put in there. But the banking and financial systems were part of a very short statement that the Fed released the day after the stock market crash. Which is quite shocking. This was the hardest thing to get past the lawyers for the books. In the days and the weeks and the months that followed, he's got the guys on the New York market's desk calling bond desks all across the street and saying, we're about to inject liquidity, just so you know. Wink, wink. Get out of the way. <laughs> so they're front-running the Fed. They've been taught since the weeks and the months that followed 1987 that they can front-run the Fed. So here's the pushback. Hey, isn't it easier if the Fed gets Wall Street traders to do their business, and now they could be a little less interventionist? They don't have to make the injection as big because the bond traders are doing their work for them. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> People have said that many, many times. I hear all the best people say that. On what basis? I mean, look what happened with this repo thing recently. Yeah. That's a few huge banks basically throwing their weight around the financial system. And by the way, when I was researching my book, I was shocked to learn that the Fed chief 
had the power to raise or lower rates on his own, the FOMC clipped his wings because he was doing it way too much. So how much of... Nothing corrupts like power. That's exactly where I was going to go. How much of the current criticism of the Fed traces back to Alan Greenspan as a deeply flawed chairman? Well, it wasn't so much Alan Greenspan, the deeply flawed chairman, had he not had two successors in his wake who adopted identical philosophies. It's just each iteration of successor was even more afraid of their shadow than the prior. How do you describe what should be the proper role of a central bank in a country like the United States? I would think that the best role for the Fed to play is making sure that the dollar you pull out of your wallet, A, you can still pull out of your wallet, sorry, Ken Rogoff, but B, is worth the same amount of money tomorrow that it is today. The dollar is very strong lately. We're the cleanest shirt in the hamper relative to the yen, Mm -hmm. the euro, the pound sterling, wherever you look in the world, the dollar is, even the yuan isn't really doing a whole lot of much. So- after a decade of QE, one, two, three, plus twist, and all this other stuff, you still have a very robust U.S. currency. Doesn't that suggest the Fed hasn't damaged that purchasing power? Well, there is that second mandate that has caused the Fed to completely go off the rails, and that is minimizing the unemployment rate mm-hmm. or maximizing employment. That was given to them in 77, 78 by Congress. Right. In the middle of a huge yes, bout of, of no stagflation, again, high unemployment, yes, all and of those high things. inflation. Yes, yes, yes. Misery index was through the roof. I get it. But nevertheless, that was a crucial error made on the part of Congress. And, and people are like, you know, you'll never be able to get Congress to say that the Fed can do negative interest rates or buy corporate bonds or buy stocks. And I'm like, when push comes to shove, Congress will vote for anything. Especially in a panic. There are no, Especially in a panic. There are no atheists in foxholes and there are no That's right. hard dollar monetists and at the Fed in the middle of a panic. No. But that second employment mandate is what has caused the Fed's mission creep and the lower for longer. They're trying to pull that one last employee in off the sidelines. Really? At the expense of going, oh, that financial stability thing. We don't know that until it hits us in the head. So so let me push back a little bit of it. I I find it hard to believe that the Fed is really concerned, uh, very concerned about unemployment with unemployment levels at 60-year lows at the same time this third mandate of backstopping the markets seems to be their biggest priorities, uh, or so some people say. What What are your thoughts on that? So, look, I, I think that there's there's a little bit of confusion here. Look, when you are when you are when you're facilitating Uncle Sam to quietly blow up debt, and and debt throughout the Obama administration grew quickly. A lot of this was in order to fund fiscal spending. But if you're if you're teaching the lesson to your to the to the the powerful politicians that run the country, that there are absolutely no ramifications for you can run up as much debt as you please because it's going to be just about free. Okay, then you're going to cause a sclerosis, an atrophying in the labor force. 
So it doesn't matter how hard the Fed tries to pull somebody off the sidelines. If they're not qualified to fill the position, it's not going to be filled. So what does one thing have to do with the other? Why does debt cause... Um, well, you have this massive expansion of the social safety net such that... In this country? Or are you talking about Obamacare? No, I'm talking about in this country in a more, in a more general sense. There, there have been some good. There I don't been know some if I'd call that massive. I mean, you've well, seen you've seen creep. There's been a big uptick in people uh, claiming uh, disability on Medicaid and Social Security. Right, and um, you, you ask the average one of these people who are basically living off the government, how much would you have to have a, an entry position job pay you in order for you to come off the sidelines and work? And it's a heck of a lot more money than they would be getting as a starting salary. Well, it's entry because that pays very little. It's going to be twenty five or thirty thousand dollars. But again, so if you get thirty thousand dollars without working or thirty thousand dollars with working, economic incentives say, why would you work? Exactly. But and how does the, how keep, is the as Fed... long as you keep government debt super 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 cheap, then you can keep these programs alive and well, as opposed to removing so you're the labor mandate the Fed with that. And, and making it a job of the private sector. I mean, it is time to make vocational training great again in this country. I, I don't think anybody's going to disagree with you about that, but where they will disagree with you about is that the Fed has enabled federal debt because you've seen federal debt go in one direction for World War II forward. You have, but you've also seen the duration of the Treasury holdings of the United States until this 20-year bond issuance that was recently announced, you've seen the duration of treasuries come way in while the United Kingdom has gone the absolute opposite way. Because if we were to be borrowing money at the maturities where we should be borrowing 50 money, 50 years, 100 50, years, 100, you name it, I'm Austria, with you on that Argentina, also. if we'd been borrowing way out there, then our interest expense would be a hell of a lot higher. Um, and nobody wants that interest I don't know if it would higher. be them. How it much would, higher would it, it be? Would, of course it would be higher. Listen, the 30-year and the 10-year are spitting distance apart. I think you do the 50-year for 2.5%, 3%. I get that, but you were talking about the long-term trend. In, yeah. And, and this, is, this, is, it's, this has been a 15-year trend of reducing the maturity profile of right. treasuries. So this is— this, this Changing the, the shape of the duration and borrowing much shorter borrowing to fund shorter and longer. shorter and shorter to fund, yes. But it's a good way to kind of hide the the evils of having 23, whatever the debt clock says downtown, 23 trillion and counting of national debt. All right. So now let me push back to you on that. So let, uh, let's round it up to 25 trillion. OK, we can forgive all student debt. Well, before we even do that, here's what a lot of people, here's what some analysts and economists and strategists have brought forth as a counter argument. Hey, we have our own printing press and we have a standing army and we have the reserve currency. Mm -hmm. We can print all the debt we want and we aren't going to have the same problem that Japan had. Oh, and P.S. Japan's credit rating is fine and the their 10-year bond is, you know, when it's not negative, it's, you know, fraction. Why does should we think that our debt isn't going to be any different than Japan's debt? Well, we are beholden to foreign ownership of our treasuries. Why? Why do we care about that? We care about it because we don't, we don't have the same latitude that Japan has because Japan's um, sovereigns are mostly owned by the Japanese internally inside the country. Right. So what Japan did is printed up a whole bunch of bonds and put it in their right pocket 
and then had their left pocket buy it. They completely created money out of thin air. They did. Why can't we do that? There's a theory that we can do that. But again, we Called? are- Called? Uh, don't make me say them. MMT. I prefer modern meritocracy theory. Right. If I, you will. I call it Bernie's uh, theory. MMT. But the, <laughs> the, the thing about MMT is A, again, go back to the fact that we do have reserve currency status, but we can't piss all over it because we are. We have well, been. We have been, but that does not mean that foreign buyers of our debt have completely stepped back. Now, now, I will say that China has methodically and for years been reducing the maturity of U.S. Treasuries. With no holds, negative impact on rates or anything with else. no negative impact. Because despite the warnings of a lot of crazies. It doesn't matter. If China is in a preparation mode to do anything, they've, they're, they're doing it right. actively. Right. And they play a much longer game than us, and they think in terms of decades. They do. And they have 10-year plans, and I wish we were as savvy when it came to industrial power, industrial um, policy and long-term planning is them. We just kind of wing it. We do, and the $25 trillion you're throwing out there has nothing to do with modern monetary theory at all. That's what we're going to have like in 18 months, for God's sake, as, as quickly as the deficit is growing. But what they're talking about is something more that's that's upwards of closer to 50. Is Trump a modern monetary that theorist? That was 50, $50 trillion. It, oh, gosh. It, I, I think— He doesn't seem to care about the debt at all. He doesn't. And Mitch McConnell doesn't care about it, and Paul Ryan pretended to care about it. So we're the responsible adults when it comes to managing debt. Outside the Beltway? Anywhere. Anywhere. There, are, I, I still care about the debt. I think there are some That's Americans one. who still care That's about one, the debt. Right. I really oh no, do. there are a lot of people do, but none within who can actually do something about it no. within the powers of, of absolutely government. not. But again. To look out at a crowd, as President Trump did recently, and to say to Kevin Warsh, you know, if you were there right now, at least I'd have negative interest rates just like Germany, and I'd be getting paid for my debt. I mean, these are the things— He's that a brilliant economic theorist. you got to give him that. Okay, my hair was on fire when he said that. <laughs> right. But other than that, it was great. I mean, right. the, the whole rest of the play, it was fine. Right. Negative interest rates come— <laughs> <laughs> Negative interest rates come to America, and aside from that, what did you think of the play? Ugh, that's please. that's very funny. But again, if you're talking about universal basic income, if you're talking about health care for all, if you're talking about student loan forgiveness, forget the pony part. It, you're still talking about doubling the debt quickly. All right, so so let's be so here's uh, uh, because by the way, Social Security and Medicare are no longer actuarial theories. There are cash flow issues over the next few years. So let's discuss that because I find that fascinating. So Social Security, we could we it's capped at about one hundred and ten thousand dollars salary is where your FICA tops out. I think if you raise it to something like two, three, four, five hundred thousand, you buy another I don't know twenty or forty years. So I'm not worried about Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. You have runaway prices of prescriptions. You have medical tourism. Because you go to Tijuana and for $2,000 get $300,000 worth of surgery. The United States is quite literally the only industrialized, developed nation without some form of a universal health care, which allows a cap on many prescription and procedure costs. And if we do that, you'll have this very lovely two-tier system where here's basic coverage for everybody— Here's high-end coverage for anyone who can afford to buy insurance, and the entire cost structure comes way, way down, or so goes the theory. What's what's wrong with that? 
before and forget forgiving school debt and forget basic income for now. Let's just get 25 percent of the U.S. economy wrestled into submission by fixing the health care system. I'm not opposed to what you just described. And there's certain rationale as long as we can keep the quality up. But you did at some point ask me why I wrote this book. Yes. Well, that actually takes us right back to Medicare and Medicaid. Mm-hmm. The Federal Reserve uses the, the PCE as its inflate chosen. Consumer price uh, equivalent, for lack of a better. Yes. It's, it's a substitute for the, for the CPI, for the Consumer Price Index. Right. And Which on, has its pro- Both of them have their both own Both of them have their problems, but, but one has a lot bigger wart than the other. Because they both understate housing, both of them. Well, the owner's equivalent rent is very problematic because when home prices are going up, paradoxically, the the residency, the the shelter portion of inflation paradoxically goes down. Right. It's It's totally backwards. And right now, rents are going up at such a fast pace, and we haven't captured that in the CPI. And we could talk about that all day long. Now, the pushback to that is, well, that's because we have this NIMBY restriction on building um, denser multifamily units and apartment buildings and areas that open that up see much more competitive prices for renters. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as we have this nimbyism, places like New York and San Francisco are going to be really problematic when it comes to renters. Hashtag asinine. But why did I write the book? <laughs> Is that a real hashtag? Can I, I Can I go to Twitter and, and punch that in? Um, so why did you write the book? Well, so Stanley Fisher was vice chairman of the Fed. For a while. Uh, Jim Bianco, one afternoon, we spent an entire afternoon fishing trying to debate why on earth the godfather of central banking, who Ben Bernanke had on speed dial in case he had an right. existential crisis, why this legend of central banking would come out of retirement. To be vice chairman. To be vice chairman of the Bernanke. Federal Reserve. Right. So his very first FOMC meeting, Fisher says, I only have one question. Why on earth do you use this convoluted PCE. Right. In my life, at least, it's at a minimum headline CPI. Right. Why don't we have something more realistic and reasonable that we're following? Right. So some trepidatious Fed staffer in the back of the room in the Eccles building raised his hand and said, well, if we don't use it, our models are going to break. So you got to fix your models. So at which point Jim Bullard, who knew he had a sense of humor, raises his hand and says, let me get this straight. This is how we make monetary policy in America. Crap in, crap out. That's the gist of it, because the PCE uses as an input Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates, which is an absolute insult to every American who's actually paying for real overpriced health care. Right. All right. So So it's 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 the shield that the Fed hides behind. I'm almost finished. uh So in 2009 and 2010. Internal debate occurs. Everybody inside the Fed is like, we might not have, you know, we might not have the right inflation metric. We might have seen this crisis coming had we incorporated something like, oh, I don't know, real estate and financial asset prices into some inflation metric. So it was decided that something had to be done because it was broken. And? And then they did nothing. (laughs) And then I got really pissed off and wrote Fed Up. So here's the pushback. I've heard the PCE and the CPI arguments. And and let let me... Just disclose my bona fides. Um, in the 2000s, I was screaming about inflation. I used to mock what I called inflation, ex-inflation. We're going to report inflation, but we're going to take out food and energy. Oh, so you're only going to report the things that aren't going up in price. Fantastic. However, 
the pushback that I find persuasive is uh, MIT has this project called the Bill- Billion Price Project. Yes. Where they use the internet to track literally millions and millions of yep. product prices. And when you overlay the Billion Price Project on top of CPI, they're not perfect, but they're pretty close. I mean, when the Billion Price Project says inflation is ticking higher, you see it in CPI. And when it flattens out, you see it in CPI. It's not perfect, but what it says is there is modest inflation out there. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of inflation in things like healthcare and education, um, both of which one is a free market disaster, the other is a, a government disaster. Uh, and you don't have a lot of inflation in things like um, technology and software. Sure. And, uh, and, and whereas real estate and rents have gone up a lot, a big chunk of that is driven by ultra-low mortgage rates because you can buy that much more. True. So you could lay that at the feet of the Fed. But overall, we've had modest inflation for the past 10 years, nothing like what we saw in the 2000s or the 1970s. I, I, I would agree with that, but... Well, we've, we've had 23 months of core CPI north of the 2% target. Mm-hmm. If you were to make one tweak to the PCE, the Fed would have long since started to normalize rates. Right. They're literally hiding behind a metric that they know and recognize is broken. I'm bad fine PCE, with the, P- I'm fine bad with the CPI. Right. I'm fine with it because we, we'd have been normalizing a long time ago. I don't think they would have even if... Even if they would have shown more inflation. Well, I, I think they're too afraid to, but that's a whole nother. That is a whole nother story. And that's what happened with QE2. And that's what happened with QE3 is that it was time to begin normalizing and the fear factor kicked in. Quite fascinating. I want to throw a quote at you and have you discuss it. Quote, the Fed is injecting billions of dollars into this market, and that's why everything is going up. Discuss. The Fed is about $100 billion a month run rate as things stand right now. Right. Commercial and industrial lending is uh, at the largest banks is negative on a year-over-year basis. Which is shocking. Well, it, it is kind of shocking because so is global trade. So are several other metrics that have never coexisted without being in, in recession. Right. So something is intervening to make everything better right now. If the money that's being pumped into the system is not going into any kind of lending of any sort— because it's not, then it's it has to find a home. So let me stop there. First, say what you will about the economy. It's fairly robust. We have lots of economic activity. It's not 3 or 4%. It's 2%. You have unemployment at 3 and change. All told, this is not a terrible economy. We don't see a whole lot of R&D. We don't see a whole lot of CapEx spending. You're not going to. We're not seeing that, and industrial is already in a recession. Manufacturing is already in a recession. Yep. But still, it's not a terrible economy. It's not a terrible economy yet. So given that, why aren't we seeing more lending? Because I think banks, uh, especially the large banks, can see the writing on the wall. I so think- you think this is a conscious decision we're not oh. going to do more loans because we think... Look, 58% of CFOs in America came into 2020 saying, we're in a cost-cutting mode. We saw that also late in 2018. They had, were throttling, we don't expect to increase CapEx spending, and, and that was right into a 20% market correction. 
the surprising thing is that CFO survey, I think that's the Duke survey, the Duke. continued straight through 2019. There was, even as the market started moving higher and recovering that loss, mm -hmm. there was no change in sentiment. So you think these CFOs are genuinely concerned about an impending recession? Well, I think that you have seen some very strange things happen. So, for, so we, we follow at Quill not seasonally adjusted, continuing unemployment claims. Because just because you apply for unemployment insurance doesn't mean you're going to get it. Right, right. So we follow a not seasonally adjusted number because it's just raw data. Are you looking at year-over-year -year numbers? Is that why you don't year, bother the seasonal yes. adjustment? So we're looking at a year-over-year. -year. So beginning in October. By the way, I love that, and that I found that enormously helpful in the financial crisis to look at year-over-year -year, uh, existing home sales, and it told the whole story. Right. So I, I love that methodology as opposed to all the seasonal adjustments and everything else, but hold that aside. We look at that number, we follow it very closely, and it is off of the lowest base you can imagine because 98 plus percent of people who qualify for unemployment insurance. Now, some states have made it a lot harder and more expensive and they've upped the premiums on these. So Moody's has done some good work showing that you don't even have the same percentage of Americans on unemployment insurance right now which is why you know, they came to the conclusion that jobless claims are inherently understated because in the aftermath of the crisis, a lot of states made it harder and or shortened the time that you could be on unemployment insurance. As, as part of the, I forgot the acronym, the, the modest fiscal response to the crisis, it was really broken into three parts. I think it was about $790 billion. A third of it went to infrastructure, which is really nothing. A third of it went to a temporary tax break, and a third of it went to temporarily extending unemployment. Right. And that ended a long time ago. It ended a long time ago. So your, your position is but, that— uh, But some states like North Carolina, there, there, are, there are a handful of states that permanently shorten the length of time right. that you can collect unemployment insurance. Some states made up for the extra expense by raising the premiums that employers had to pay for unemployment insurance. W within their state. So, so all of So this you're being, saying the—, the Looking at the unemployment rolls today is a little misleading. It is a little misleading. But set that aside. Set that aside. We've still seen, starting in October, four consecutive months of year-over-year -year increases in not seasonally adjusted continuing claims. That is, the number of Americans collecting unemployment insurance on a year-over-year -year clean basis has been increasing since October. What does that mean historically if you see that increase in four months? Well, it's the first months. time that we've seen this since 2009. All right. Well, 09, clearly a different situation. Go previous to that. Is, is this a recession indicator or it, is this a softening of GDP indicator? It should be a recession indicator. But you're saying the Fed is preventing that from spiraling out Look, of control. You, you've never seen global debt. Right now we've seen year over year. There's a Netherlands global debt monitor. The next one for it's very lag. The next one's coming out in December. But you've seen that going down on a year-over-year -year basis since, I believe, May of 2019. Meaning less debt or lower quality of debt? What no, does no, that no. mean this when is, it goes down? This is down? world trade. World trade. World, oh, okay. World gotcha. trade volumes have been declining on a year-over-year -year basis. Right. And my friend— Now, how much of that is coronavirus and how much of that is just This is all pre-coronavirus. No, 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 no. Oh, really? This is, this is May through November. We wow. only have a small snapshot because it's extremely lag data. Right. Forget coronavirus. This thing's going to fall off a cliff. But— my buddy Lacey Hunt taught me that you ha go back to your recession starting in 80. If a U.S. recession is accompanied by contracting world trade, 
It's a nasty recession. It's a global recession. 1990, no contraction in, in world trade. And, 2000, and 1990, was that even a real recession or was that a, just a mild There was temporary a real estate something going on there. Yeah. And then 2000, 2000. Well, you had, FYI, we had 87. You had the crash. The Fed responded to it. You had a temporary blip in housing, and and then it fell pretty much off a cliff. If you bought a co-op or a condo in New York following the 87 crash and a drop in rates, you ended up not getting back to break even for like six or eight years, which is unheard yeah, of was, in New yeah. York. On the East in New York specifically, that was a, a terrible real estate recession. Right. But, Caused, but it, driven in some part by Greenspan's panic. So, but, That's a good title for a book. There you go. I want to bring this 2000, back to the market. 2000, 2001, no global trade contraction, not a bad recession. Right. Two, that was 2001 was a short, what was that, March to November with September 11th, right in September the middle 11th. of it. Uh, by got, the time 9-11 hit, we were much closer to the end than the beginning of the 2009, recession. 2009, ugly contraction in right. world trade, ugly recession. Right. And here we are with this phenomenon. We're staring at. So we have rising continuing jobless claims and contracting world trade and bupkis going on in the economy. So I would argue the 09 to 10 or really the 07 to 09 recession was driven by the market, not the economy itself contracting. The market caused a disaster. And then that led into a whole bunch of systemic problems. But let's talk about today. You've discussed, and I'm paraphrasing. The Fed has gone into the market. They've exchanged short-dated government bonds for reserves already held at the Fed. Government bonds are the most liquid asset in the world. How does that end up impacting equities? Because I think that's where the debate about the Fed sort of schisms into two camps. So I'll tell a really quick story because it's not the stock market you have to be directly concerned with. It's keeping the bond market open. Right. That's what's most important. Ed Yardini's done some good work. Sure. Uh, over half of share buybacks are financed with debt. 67, well, even more than that. Okay, so, um, so I'm, I'm going based off that. What happened on Halloween 2018 when Moody's downgraded General Electric's debt was what was the game changer for Jay Powell. Jay Powell still doesn't give a damn about the stock market. Huh. But he, he cannot not care about the bond market, which is whatever it is, almost $10 trillion. 74% of GDP non-financial debt all-time record high in this country. So Halloween, GE debt gets downgraded. November the 14th, 2018, the high-yield bond market shuts down. Goodbye. Good night, Irene, for 41 record days. Right. You've got redemptions on high-yield ETFs. You have the IMF, the BIS. All these global entities are like, J. Powell, you got a problem on your hands. The collateral backing these fixed-income uh, ETFs was trading by appointment only, spreads were gapping out, yields were going through the roof, and you have this quiet at first, and it got really loud chorus of CFOs on Wall Street saying, we're going to behave and stop buying back our stock because we're going to have to pay attention to our balance sheets. They were lying. They were lying, but they didn't have to lie for long because the meltdown in the market catalyzed by the shutdown in the credit markets, shut down share buybacks, people got afraid enough in Q4 of 2018, scared Jay Powell. Jay Powell knows one thing, October 2012, FOMC transcripts. QE is blowing a fixed income duration bubble across the entire credit spectrum. That's a quote. So Jay so Powell, 2000. 
12. So here's the pushback I've read and heard, and some of which resonates, some of which doesn't. It goes something like this. First, junk bonds are supposed to default. That's what junk bonds do. They're Not called, in America. They're called junk for a reason. And when the spread between quality corporates and junk gets too small, that's how you know you're in a frothy, at best, bubble at worst situation. Second, yeah, there's been some problems in the repo market and there's been some problems in the credit market, but it's mostly plumbing. Just like 87 was a plumbing problem and the equity market hadn't caught up technologically, uh -huh. they were still doing paper. Hey, these are relatively young markets, these repo markets, and they're certainly not, you know, like Japanese rice markets that have been around for centuries. And so this is just a plumbing problem and we'll figure it out. What's your what's your response to that pushback? I, I would like to see the markets figure it out without having the pacifier. Please the, and thank you. Being, I mean, look, being the it, pacifier, it, being the Federal we, Reserve. We only, we only had a 2% portfolio insurance position against the stock market capitalization in 1987. What, you know, that was just 2%. The risk parity trades only about ten percent. So let's just let's just throw it up against the wall. Let's see what happens. Let's let credit credit volatility come unhinged and see what happens. So I'm one of these crazy free market people who think if something goes belly up, like long term capital, um, or maybe that's a bad example because the Fed Is actually. Is Alan Greenspan rode to the rescue? No, because that's the one where all Greenspan did was bang a bunch of heads together and say, "Hey, you private banks." You go work this out yourself without the Fed being well, very like, involved, because like if JP we get involved, we're, you're not going to be happy. Yeah. So, so the question and is, one, one gentleman from Bear Stearns told him where to fly. So here's the. That's right. Who was who was by the way one of the biggest counterparties to LTCM, but hold that. And, and by the way, the whole rescue was a dry run for a decade later for what we ended up doing. But hold that aside. What would happen if the Fed wasn't intervening in the repo market or wasn't providing liquidity when there were frictions and, and some freezes in some of these smaller backwater credit markets? With short-term interest rates pushing double digits, what would have happened? No, no. What would happen today if the Fed says, all right, you know, we're done intervening here. You guys figure it out. The free market can work this out. What's the net result of that? I don't think we know, Barry. I think that we would see rates be a lot higher than they are. It's a little problematic when you're running trillion-dollar deficits. So when you say a lot higher, 4 5 6% or 9 10 11%? I don't, I, don't, I don't know that the market would end up at 9 or 10%, but I know that if the market was to end up at 4 or 5%, given that the Fed wants to put a new replacement for LIBOR out there, it would be the worst possible development. All right, so given all that, and the Fed's about to cut rates again because of the coronavirus. I mean, that, that was my just... next question. You you beat me to the question. Given that, what do you think the Fed is going to do over the next four meetings? Real. And by the way, does the investors don't fight the Fed, but there is one cohort out there that doesn't fight the Fed harder than the people who don't fight the Fed, and that's the Fed itself. The Fed never fights itself. It never right. fights the market. It never fi fights WIRP new. Type it into your Bloomberg. It never fights expectations of rate cuts, and it never even fights expectations of Fed moves when it came to Ben Bernanke was completely guided in terms of the size of the tapering of quantitative easing way back when by what the survey from the New York Fed was saying. The, the Fed is guided by the financial markets, and it will do what they tell the, it to do.
Can you stick around a bit? I got a bunch more questions for you. Of course. We have been speaking with Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is the founder and chief strategist of Quill Intelligence and author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things Fed-related. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Overcast, Stitchers, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I'm afraid that people are going to hear us on the radio and not hear this part of the discussion. And they're going to say, hey, man, what are you giving her such a hard time for? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. We kind of know each other for... We've been doing this for a decade. Right? Is it that yeah, long? It Just... is. The day I met you is the day I met Jim Bianco, walked into the fishing lodge. There you were. This is up in Maine. Up in Maine, always the first person there at the lodge so that you can suck up all the bandwidth and turn your Bloomberg on. That's early in the morning. I uh, I do my morning reads and I found... Well, now Game you actually... Game theory in Maine. Barry right. plays hard. Right. Actually, now there is some bandwidth in each of the room, each of the cabins, but the best bandwidth is in the uh, dining hall. Yep. And I get... Listen, I'm an early riser. Uh, the early bird gets, gets the, the worm. worm. I and know the, you, the, you've mentioned the that. The early blogger year. gets the bandwidth. That's the <laughs> that's the thesis up there. Um, and we've we've had a number of uh, fascinating debates and discussions and experiences. And Maine is really a blast. Camp Kotak is always delightful. I can't wait. Um, Had it there this August. I, it wasn't last year. It was the previous year. Uh, someone said, "How long have you been coming here?" And I've been saying, I, "I don't know, five, six years for a few years." And someone said, well, when was your first year? And I had to figure it out. And I'm like, oh, it's been a decade. Oh, my God. It's crazy. Yeah. I think this. I don't know if this year was 11 or 12. This year's 10 for me. So you skipped a year. I have a streak. I haven't missed one. I skipped a year. I, w I was in the middle of writing a book. But yes. Right. Um, yeah, but it's a weekend. Come on. You could you could take a weekend off from okay. the book. It's, okay. it's Dallas, Texas to, to nowhere in Maine versus right. New York. To nowhere in Maine. It's a little bit different calculus. So it's like an hour flight up to Bangor, and then you drive about two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. Like the from the time I leave my house till the time I get in the car in Bangor is more time than the time I leave Bangor and get to 
get to Lean's Lodge unless I stop for a lobster roll at the Eagle's Nest Which on the way. Which is a must. Yeah. So Tack that's... on a four-hour flight for, in from Dallas, usually the 5.45 a.m. and changing, told you to live in Dallas? Changing terminals and getting to that damn Bangor flight, but I get there. There are lots of places I would consider living outside of New York. Dallas happens to be pretty nice, and Austin is just such a party town. Austin's when wonderful. you went to co- school there, when you went to grad school, like today, Austin is a full-blown hipster. Someone described it as the blueberry in the middle of the raspberry pie that is Texas, <laughs> which I find hilarious. But what was Austin like when you went to school there? Was it a big party town? It was. It's always been a big party yeah. town. It's always been huge for live music. I mean, it's, huge, it's huge. institutional level of, of music. Uh, you know, Sixth Street was around then, but the aging— Not like today. The aging of, of Austin, and now you have Fifth Street, which is where people my age go because they don't want to go on Sixth Street because right. germs are no longer for sharing at our age. Right. So, you know, but— There are more roof bars in Austin today than I think any city I've ever Amen. been in. And they've they've really just opened some very nice hotels. There's plenty of room for the tourists. But go downtown, stay downtown. For heaven's sake, don't get stuck in that traffic. <laughs> to, say, to say the least. So— there's a ton of questions I didn't get to that I, I want to circle back, and I don't have you here all day, but we've been talking long enough. Um, so here's here's the the really interesting discussion, which all this comes right from your book. What do you mean by the Fed is bad for America? That seems like a pretty harsh statement. They're, they've made mistakes. They're certainly an important entity. I don't think either of us are in the Ron Paul and the Fed no, 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 camp. No, 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 You know, no, no. like that's like unilateral nuclear no. disarmament. No. But it— Plus, I mean, look at what the Chinese have done for everybody who always says, God, you've got to end the Fed. Just get rid of it. I'm like, look at what the Chinese can do with our intellectual property. Right. Okay, now put it on steroids and see what they can do to our financial system. Right. Just you, leave you, the thing you can't unpoliced. Disarmed. Right. Please. It's it, it's ridiculous. See, I notion. thought Ron Paul was out of his mind with that nonsense. It, it is, and I some of that's hyperbolic just for him to make a point. But I think he truly believed that, and his son believes it also. Look, it's just it's not practical. Not in the world we live in. We can deglobalize all we want, but we're never going to unglobalize. There's there's a difference between the two. So so that raises the question: How should the Fed set interest rates? The Fed should set interest rates more. A, the Fed needs to let these markets somehow, some way normalize. If you talk to people who say that the Fed is going to blow up the balance sheet to $10 trillion, it's going to ease into the next recession, ease even more through the next recession, and eventually we'll have a debt jubilee and sing kumbaya and walk off into the sunset. I'm excited. I have a lot of cars I want to buy that are beyond my budget. I'll just borrow against it and if we do student loan forgiveness maybe we could do uh well, look, i mean you got to go back to biblical times before you had a banking system to just say oh it's going to be really easy let's just do this debt jubilee did somebody say private debt markets oh god what are we going to do with those it's more complicated than than what it's made out to be and i think somebody at the fed somebody in, has got to deal with having the beginning and the end of a recession right so in other words if we want to stick with the biblical theme Seven fat years, seven lean years. Things are cyclical, not just—you mentioned this is 10-year expansion, the elongated expansion. 
Um, Australia went, what, 27 years, and they still haven't had a recession, 27 years and counting? It, it, How uh, far Australia's can this— Australia's been 28 years and counting, but we have not had a benefactor named China. Right. I, sp- I had a speech in, in, in Australia. I was there for 12 days. Just about everything is not made in China, but owned by China. Or exported to China, all their or natural resources. Or exported to China, resources. or imported from China. I would argue we have had a benefactor named China, because they make all our crap cheap, and they're where we make every manufacture everything. But they don't own our biggest port. They don't have a 50-year lease on our biggest port in Melbourne. They don't own an island I went on, on the own the island on the Great Barrier Reef. They haven't put up all of these skyscrapers that, by the way, are wrapped with something that is extremely flammable. Um, so it's What are they wrapped with? Oh, something, something that is literally extremely flammable. So now there are certain high-rise buildings in Melbourne and in Sydney that you kind of know not to buy at. Really? Well, some guy dropped a cigarette in the whole... Three floors went up before. That's insane. Anyways, anyways, all I'm saying is that 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 Australia is an aberration, but in a good sense of the word, they never went to the zero bound. So, and that was our fatal flaw. The Bernanke doctrine was the fatal flaw. The idea that we absolutely had to go to the zero bound. I think that Jay Powell is so correct in pushing back against negative interest rates. I even hope he stops at one. So now let me throw out an alternative um, scenario, a counterfactual, but it's really based on reality. It's not a counterfactual. Normally, we have a regular playbook, and whenever there is a financial crisis, we learned this from Lord Keynes way long ago, what you end up doing is you cut taxes, you increase fiscal spending, you temporarily replace the collapse in demand from businesses and households with government, then the economy begins to recover. You start to take that back and you normalize things. And if there's a little bit of monetary policy assistance, great. But in 28 and 2008 and 2009, there was almost no real, I mean, it seems weird to say, yeah, $785 billion is nothing. But given the size of the financial crisis, that should have been a three, four, five trillion dollar multi-year right. stimulus. Bernanke looked out at Congress and he had some meetings and he said, "You guys have to do fiscal stimulus or we're going to hell." And they said, "Look, we'll give you carte blanche, do whatever you want, but sorry, it, it's not coming from us." Right. What should the Fed have done in response to that? Should their response should have been, "Hey, you guys are on your own. I'm going to let the whole thing go to hell." You'll all get voted out of office because you will have screwed up. And then when the next crop comes in, I'll work with them. But this is on you guys. William McChesney Martin or Paul Volcker would have told them to do just that. Jump. Go jump in a lake. That would have been that. Right. Either you save the economy or it's the world's greatest recession and every one of you is unemployed and living in for me forever. The very first, I've written a weekly every single week since I left the Fed in June of 2015. The very first thing that I wrote was how... Congress abdicated its authority to the Federal Reserve. 100%. It's time for the fiscal authorities to do their damn job. So what should the now, here we are, in the elongated expansion, mm-hmm. and nine, ten years following the 0809 debacle, we get a giant tax cut, we get a giant fiscal stimulus. Is that just pro-cyclical instead of counter-cyclical? Should that, is that what we, trillion dollars, what we should have done in 09 or 010? Well, it was a little after the fact. What, 2017? Mm-hmm. 
So what should be taking place on a fiscal I mean, to me, basis? At least that was that was blatantly political. In of nature. course, of course it was. As is the one that was just right, just floated. Um, I have no idea what the hell that was. As is the one that was just floated for the summer. Oh, let's find a way to get more money into the stock market, and let's do a middle class tax cut. Obviously, August or uh, July of a of an election year, that's political. And obviously, politics is that's never going to well, get through I don't through even Congress. know how fiats get on the island because there are some potholes here in New York that are big enough that they could swallow a small car. Right. I mean, you want to spend money? Infrastructure. For God's sake, spend it on infrastructure. And everybody by the agree- way— Everybody agrees. Why can't we do that? And by the way, it puts a lot of blue-collar workers to sure. work. This for years. This is fantastic for years at a right. time. This is great. This is what we've been seeing, what we saw in the automobile sector right. worldwide as China urbanized, which was just a huge boom to the current recovery. That's what we saw with fracking, is it put blue-collar people to work. Ooh, and- let me push back at you on that. Well, at least um, in the state of Texas. I mean, you're making $100,000 a year and fast in the so oil patch. So read Saudi America by Bethany McLean, who mm-hmm. basically says— the entire low-rate regime of the Federal Reserve is the only thing that's made fracking competitive with everything else because it's so capital-intensive and it's all borrowed money. Oh, gosh, it's all borrowed money. No, 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 no. I just wrote a recent paper on this. The 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 growth of the Fed's balance sheet literally moves in lockstep, in lockstep with the growth of the energy industry. I didn't say it was free to build. I said it employed, <laughs> it employed people who don't have college degrees. So, so would infrastructure. So does automobile. So here's a debate that I know you love to engage in on Twitter, and I just kind of watch from afar. I engage in much dumber debates on Twitter. <laughs> the repo market is what's driving the the Fed's activity to inject more liquidity, and that's spilling over to the equity markets, and that's why stocks are going higher. We, look, we, we've discussed this again. You can try and see what happens if rates rise, if you step back. Don't go to 10% on overnight. Go to 4 or 5% and see what happens. See how, about how 2 or 3%. <laughs> I don't even think that that would fly given the sensitivity, given the wall. Look, every time there's been a wall of, of refinancing, you would blow up what's left of the shale patch right now. Right. Because there's so much paper that has to be refinanced this year, and God help us next year. For the next five years, it's like $71 billion, 64% there's, of shale debt has to be refinanced in the next five years. I was going to say, isn't there like a wildly disproportionate amount of corporate debt associated with fracking? And like just so far out well, of it was invaded by, you know, living in Texas, I'm like, you know, what is this Greenwich private equity firm doing down here? Well, they got they, making they, it rain. That's had, what they do. They had some money. I mean, they were going to build the tallest skyscraper in Midland, Odessa. That was going to be the tallest thing between Dallas and Los Angeles. But I mean, thank I mean that that funding was pulled. It, it would have ended up just about as good as the late 1980s Rolls Royce dealership in Midland, Odessa. Do, do you remember in the 80s the see-through buildings in Dallas? They put up all these and Houston. They put up all these mm-hmm. uh, office buildings. Yep. And they were unoccupied. You literally could see straight through from one yeah. end to the so other. Every time I hear a central banker talk about how much the, the sanctity of the financial system and how much stronger our banks are, I'm like, you might want to reference your own data, Federal Reserve, on commercial <laughs> real estate loans on bank balance sheets See, and see that they've gone through the roof because of regulatory 
costs that were were associated with Dodd-Frank, small and mid-sized banks in this country are not in good shape. Small and mid-sized banks are not in good shape. And why is that? They're, they're, are there still small and mid-sized banks left? They're eyeball not. No. Well, there's been a hell of a lot of consolidation. Right. Ask any so American that's the first question. Non-bank. If you look at the holdings of both assets and loans of the top, let's call it 10 banks, it's like one and a, two and a half times what it was 20 years ago. It's, it's really become wildly top-heavy. Oh, yeah. So too, now too we've had all this— is, is, is impossibly big to fail. So so now that we've had all this consolidation, what does that mean for the small and mid-sized banks? It, it means it's not good. It means that—and this was something that was, again, internally debated at the Fed— if you want to impose these capital requirements, if you want to impose these compliance um, requirements, do it for the big banks. But for God's sake, don't do it for small and mid-sized lenders. If you do, they're going to go way out on the risk spectrum and make the crazy commercial real estate loans that, they're got, that they've got right now. And to be fair, they have set up different tiers of requirements for Yeah, but this was a day late and a dollar short. All right. I mean, this this, this happened okay. long after the loans were made. All right. And my la- before I get to my favorite questions, I have one question I have to ask you. What would it take to make you bullish on stocks? I'm not bearish on stocks. All right. So your clients are very often investors and not just corporate entities and others. I say as long as the as long as the Fed is printing, they cannot be fought. So you, that's my biggest mistake in my entire career was that I knew when I left the Fed with PTSD in a bad way, uh-huh. I knew in my guts that as long as they printed enough that they were going to hold up risky asset prices. It didn't matter what valuations were. That hasn't changed. I had to learn it the hard way. So as long as the Fed is accommodative and as long as they are not either reversing QE, doing QE, unless there's a global, quantitative tightening. Unless there's a global calamity that is big enough to put the world in recession. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not somebody who thinks that we can completely decouple. The entire Canadian uh, yield curve is inverted, all of it, all right. the way up to 30 years. Mexico, where I'm, I'm presenting at the Bank of Mexico, Banxico, next week, they're in recession. They're not getting out of recession anytime soon. We've never not been in recession. If, if Canada goes, Germany, for sure, is in recession Cle- as yeah. we and speak. And has been for a, a good year and well, change. Well, you know, they, they, they're flat, whatever. Germany's in recession. And you just saw some really ugly employment data post uh, pre-coronavirus come out of Germany. Right. So that industrial slowdown. And China is, is for sure, right. in whatever... On a paper basis, at the very least, they're showing a giant drop in GDP. Right. So, right. I even mean, if it's temporary, if, and even if, if they make yes. up some of it, I mean, it's like all of a sudden everybody's, and the UK everybody's also. Janet Yellen because the favorite buzzword on Wall Street now is transitory. It's all transitory. It's all transitory. Right. Hey, everything this on this not, planet is transitory, including the planet. Well, and I get asked by people all the time. Well, even if we go into recession, the Fed can just keep printing, and even if we go into recession, the stock market's going to stay up. And I'm like, that's happened on rare occasions in the past. I'm not of the opinion, given where we are in the cycle, that that happens. I, I wouldn't disagree with you. So I'm curious if when people listen to this, how much they think you and I actually agree on and how much they think you and I disagree on. Because I'm asking questions very often playing a role and not necessarily. Right. I, I, my job isn't to debate you. My job is to bring some of the questions other people have raised about some of the subjects I mean, you've talked about. Of, of all people on planet Earth, you know, the person who wrote the expose, I had to learn after the fact, don't fight the Fed. 
Don't fight the Fed. So you're pretty constructive. And uh, what are you, like uh, 300% leveraged on uh, long, long fang stocks? Is <laughs> that own, how you're invested? I own a ton of municipal bonds, and I own a ton of gold, and I'm not unhappy. <clears throat> uh, well, gold is approaching 1600 yeah, I'm not, I'm I, not, I did uh, well with gold in the 2000s, and once it you know, peaked and reversed, I tapped out and said, I'm I think not you there. have to be bold, bold, bold in your asset allocations. I yeah. really, really do. When there's as much global uncertainty as there is. And I like when muni bonds. Central banks are the only game in town. Hell, I did well in Puerto Rico. But you, you have to be bold in your allocations. Gold should be 10%. No, 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 no. Oh, so how much gold do you own no, relative you should, to your no, portfolio? You should have you should have 20-25% in precious metals at a really? time like this. Wow. Again, at a time like this. That's I tiptoed in about 9 months ago. Wow. That is a bold call, 25% precious. And my metals. muni bonds have never I mean throughout ups downs in You've, betweens right now they're they're fat and they have But we've been in a 40 haven't we been in a 40 year yeah. bond bull market? Yeah. So whatever you own that's not junk has done pretty well. I wouldn't own a lot of corporate bonds in America today. Huh. That's interesting. See, I break corporates into the, you know, the B, B plus and up, and then everything under that. Even, not the junk, even like the near junk. Like, I, want, I don't want to own anything below B minus. I don't want to, no. It, and a, a buddy of mine who used to work at one of the big three uh, credit rating agencies, the stories that I've heard right out of her mouth, the uh -huh. management is twisting arms to maintain investment grade ratings. I'm like... No, no, thank you. Not in my portfolio. Does does anyone still really pay attention to the credit ratings after the debacle of AIG and Lehman and Enron? Yeah, I do. And, I think. I think. And the whole financial crisis was look, the one lesson. There are many lessons, but the one lesson is: Hey, credit agencies, they are like stock analysts whose yep. job is to generate more syndicate business. They're not here for you, the bond buyer. They're there for the okay. bond underwriter. We know that, but. Shouldn't bond buyers know G. that? Bianco has some insane numbers that he can trail out about the 46,000 firms and the 413,000 different registered investment advisors and the millions of accounts that exist and they're all basically look like the same damn pie. Right. One of the slices of that pie is an investment grade bond ETF. That investment makes, grade. That, that makes mom and dad sleep at night right. because they know it's money good. Well, guess what? I wouldn't own half of whatever's in there. All right. So now I only have you here for another 10 minutes. I have to get to my favorite questions okay. because I know um, there's some of your favorite questions. So let's uh, on that happy note, let's jump right into these what what some people call our speed round. Um, and I'm going to add a question. Uh, I'm going to mix it up a little bit because I have to ask, what was your first car? My first car was an Acura. It was a hatchback, but I can't remember the name of it. What year? Was it Integra? Yeah, they had the little Integra. Little that was Integra. a cute little I had, car. I had, I had a... That you could get that with a five-speed and toss it around. It was really based on a, yeah, on a sort of pumped-up version of an Accord. With, with a transmission and right. a five-speed. Just, it's been tried a few times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, And don't get me wrong. Like, like I said, recently... You're a bit to, of a car guy, went right? Went to my first F1 race, didn't want to leave. I'm like, no, no, you surely you can go a few more laps. I've been to the Daytona, 24 hours of Daytona. I left for two that's hours, tough, came back. That's a tough race, the 24 hours. It's, it's too but, long. You know what? But watching Italians cry in the rain when their engine blocks crack, is something magical Just about go that. go to Le Mans. That's if you, you'll see more of that. Um, what are you streaming, listening to, downloading these days? So I'm not a big podcaster, but... Um, what about video? Amazon Prime, Netflix, what are you watching? 
Um, so I did just watch uh, the Kaminsky Method, which I found so to good. be hilarious and so good. Perfectly, it's like a twenty-one, twenty-two minute slice. Right, it's great. It's amazingly quick. Look, serious radio for me. I'm so dating good. myself. Yeah. It's just so awesome. If I'm in a particular mood, hell, I can turn on- Are you on- eight on 80s or 70 on 70s, or what do you listen Sometimes to? Sometimes I'm listening to Bruce for hours. The E Street channel? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Occasionally, I'll even turn on Elvis. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm an alternative rock kind of a person. I'm, I'm channel 33. Uh, so do you listen to deep cuts? Is that what that is? Mm-mm. Or vinyl rewind? I don't know. Sometimes the, I do vinyl rewind. I don't know the numbers Sometimes off the top of my head. Sometimes I do classic rewind. And do you ever listen to comedy greats? No, that I don't. Like 96 or 97? Check no. that out. It's actually, I mean, it's- But every, I could, you know, but laughter is good for the soul, and I don't is. laugh very much being this huge Fed critic, so I'm, I'm going to find you it. You should find a way to laugh I'm gonna at find the it. Fed. Uh, who are some of your early mentors? Who guided your career? So I would say that um, the, the most important mentor was, was, uh, was Charlie, excuse me, was Harvey Rosenblum. Uh-huh. And Harvey took me under his wing. He he was the director of research at the Dallas Fed. He was the the right hand super man nice guy to Richard Fisher, and um, he taught me how to be more accepting of of the school of economics okay. and be less resentful. Even though my father may rest in peace, he taught economics and finance, and I said never will I ever go there. But he and here you are. Here I am. He gave me a great respect for the school of economics, and I gave him a great respect for the financial markets. And it's been one of the loveliest collab- collaborations of my career. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading? What sort of books do you like to read? So I like to read books that are almost off in their brilliance. The book that's had the greatest impact on my career is The Lords of Finance, hands down. Liquad Ahmet, and I believe that won the Pulitzer Prize. Did I'm, it? I'm pretty sure it did. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's an amazing book. About the four Fed chiefs from the U.S., oh, U.K., yes, 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 yes. Germany, and France. And the parallels between pre-crisis and pre-World War One are just, they're stunning. Right. And it's well-written. Really well-written. Really, really, and... I had no idea who he was until that book came out. And but, it was you know, if it's for great. pleasure, you know, the last year's a, a quirky book that, that had history in it off of a Greek island called The Destroyers. That was fun. The Destroyers. Who wrote that? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. The Destroyers. That's really interesting. And then and then Goldfinch. Thank God I didn't watch the movie. That's all I have to say. Goldfinch. I, Goldfinch is probably one of the best written books out there. Period. End. Wow. So if you've not read either of those... Um, Who wrote Goldfinch? I have no idea. I don't do authors. Uh, the Destroyers, a novel by Christopher Boland? Yep, that's it. Wow. And then let's see what Goldfinch has. Uh, who wrote that? I think it's Goldfinch that won the Pulitzer, actually. Uh, the Goldfinch yes. by Donna Tartt and yep. David... Donna Tartt. Yep. Wow. All right, so that's three books. That's great. Uh, Lords of Finance, Goldfinch, and The Destroyers. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, I learned not to fight the Fed, mm-hmm. even though I did it internally for nine years. But after I left the Fed, I have learned how important liquidity is to the financial markets. I'm going to quote current Dallas uh, Fed President Robert Kaplan and say, let's see what happens if you take the liquidity away. So I've learned to not fight the Fed. 
Quite interesting. What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not uh, in the office writing? I travel. I for, travel for fun travel, or for work. I travel. I travel for fun almost as much as I travel for um, for work. And I always try when I'm traveling for work to have a little bit of fun in there, whether it's one of my favorite restaurants in New York or if I'm in London seeing something that I would never see when I, when I had this big speech in Australia. Wow, it was life changing to see that beautiful country. Unfortunately, you know, before the the, the big wildfires. And um. All right, so I don't know whether to ask this about the Fed or General. I'll I'll give you the option. What are you most optimistic about today, and what are you most pessimistic about? So I'm clearly most pessimistic about the the printing press running twenty four seven, making us even more reliant on the largesse of the Fed. Optimistic? I am optimistic because I'm close enough to my children and watching them get an education and learning about charter schools to begin thinking that there's some kind of grassroots desire to begin education reform, which I think is so much more important than anything else in this country is is reforming education. Interesting. Uh, Speaking of education, a recent college grad came to you and said, I'm interested in a career in either fill-in-the-blank, journalism, economics, uh, Wall Street, what sort of advice would you give them? So I'm going to switch it to being a recent high school graduate. Either or. I would tell them to... Go to college. Bite the bullet and get an engineering degree. And after the engineering degree, they can get a, a higher advanced degree in whatever they want. But to get an engineering degree, there's many different forms of engineering in this world, many different stripes. But get that as your base. Mm -hmm. When I was in business school, when I got my MBA in finance, it was always those damn engineers who threw the curve. But they're they're raging successes later on in life. Huh. That's quite... I don't care if it's law school or to to become a doctor after. Start with an engineering degree. I got to say, uh, I think that's pretty good advice. And our final question, what do you know about the world of monetary policy, Federal Reserve, crisis management today that you wish you knew 20 years ago? I wish I would have known about the group of 30 prior to joining the Fed. Meaning the nation group of 30? It is a group of 30 of the world's most powerful central bankers and financiers. I wish I would have known that 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 existed because it took me too long to figure out that all central bankers appear to be cut from the same stripe. And the reason that it is so difficult to extricate ourselves, it's because everybody around the world is using the same guidebook. It's the same playbook. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking to Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. If you enjoy this conversation, uh, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the previous 300 or so such conversations we've had over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Go to Apple iTunes and please give us a review. Be sure and check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Sign up for the daily reads at Ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps me put this little conversation together each week. Mark Siniscalci is my audio engineer. 
Sam Shivraj is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.